Hi there. Welcome back to The Real Film Chronicles. As always, I'm Nathan. And I'm Brian. And in today's very special episode, we're going to be talking about a favorite film of ours called Donnie Darko. Very special indeed. I was looking forward to what... Just to rewind a little bit, we were sort of talking about the next few episodes we should do, different movies we want to cover. We want to mix in some older films as we go along. And you mentioned Donnie Darko, and I almost fell out of my chair thinking, (laughs) why have we not done a recording on this one yet? In fact, I'm not sure we've really even talked about Donnie Darko in a great number of years. Mm -hmm. So when did we discover Donnie Darko? Because I feel like we kind of discovered this movie together. We didn't see this in the theater, right? No, I mean, um, just the whole history of Donnie Darko, it was kind of an underdog story um, to begin with. Um, It was... Um, Richard Kelly was the writer slash director. Yeah. Um, he was very young when he wrote this and ended up, I think he was 23 or 24 at the time he was able to direct this. Yeah. I didn't realize that until this viewing when I started looking some information up, I, I was watching a little behind the scenes making of it. It's like, oh, he was in his early twenties doing this. Wow. Yeah. It's very relevant for him. But, uh, it got, it was released at, I think, was it the Sundance Film Festival initially, um, got mixed reviews, got a very limited theatrical release. It actually came out just after 9-11. So it was released in, it was um, in late, October. late October. Yeah, uh, It was actually pushed back, I, I believe. So it didn't get a huge theatrical run. So it really was one of those kind of cult films. That, and so that was in 2001. It was released theatrically. So I think we found out about it either in 2002 or 2003 then. It was shortly after the theatrical run. I, it didn't take that long for yeah. word to start spreading about this, but this Donnie Darko quickly came up because we were, um, even at that time, uh, we were in university. We had started our, even back then, our, our kind of journey, um, uh, our love affair with, not with each other, but with movies. <laughs> that would have been awkward. Um, but yeah, our love of cinema was evident even then. And we were specifically at that point, we're watching like a lot of the mainstream blockbuster stuff, but we wanted to get it. I think a little bit off yeah. the beaten path. And we, so we were exploring certain things like, and Donnie Darko was one of those movies that would, would come up in online discussions, like alongside movies like Memento um, that were just kind of yeah. radically different from all the movies that we were seeing that were a little bit off the beaten path. And I think for, you know, being university students um, looking for something different um, than the mainstream kind of blockbuster fair that we were um, typically had. Donnie Darko was one of those, I think it was a, a reasonable kind of logical entry point into, you know, that kind of deeper, maybe more obscure film. It's not obscure. We, yes. it's, it's weird to think of Donnie Darko as obscure or cult now that it's gained this, it's gained this, um, this following and it's critical acclaim now. Um, but back in the day, it was not well received by critics. It was divided audiences. Yeah. And it was one of those, it was one of those cool little things like, um, I don't like clerks or memento, where it's like you were, you watched Donnie Darko and you, ta- you mentioned it to somebody and they, and they knew what you were talking about. And it's like, Oh, we're part of that kind of secret society yeah. of like film lovers. And it was kind of one of those code words, right? Well, it's fair to say it's probably one of the very first cult films that we really got involved in. And Honestly, this movie fits the very definition of a cult film. Very small, uh, very low budget, uh, muddied release that basically for most of us went straight to DVD at the time. And we would have gone out to Blockbuster, crawling through aisles, trying to find something interesting. And you're right. I'm glad you mentioned the online stuff because the online, like in 2002, was still, you know, 
a, wild, a bit of a wild west <laughs> yeah. situation and you'd really grab onto some some different forums and communities and see what other people are talking about and then i mean we would have went out to blockbuster rented this thing and i think almost immediately afterwards we're headed we're hitting up all the different movie music stores wherever we can buy dvds to go and find this thing to yeah buy so it. we must have rented it first to watch it because Ooh, I, I remember exactly where i got my first copy on dvd it was you and me and our roommate dave yep and we were out at a, a store called cd plus which that chain doesn't yep. exist anymore at least in canada <laughs> and uh, we were we found one copy on dvd of donnie darko and dave and i we flipped a coin to see who was going to buy it because <laughs> obviously we all wanted to buy it i don't know why you weren't in the mix brian i think you let us uh you let us uh, show down over this but anyway yeah, maybe it was just the entertainment <laughs> value right there but like I, I won the coin flip. Um, I was simultaneously elated and kind of bummed because like 25 bucks, I think it was like, I think 20, yeah, 20, it's, it's like not 25 cheap. bucks, brand new movie for a starving student was, was a bit of a change, yeah. but, um, I, I got the new arrow 4k release, um, the full big box set. Um, I'm super happy with it, but I still have somewhere here. My original, so original DVD, DVD nice. copy. I haven't given it away or traded it away yet, but, uh, I still remember just like we were just desperate to go out and get that a copy so we could rewatch that. Um, yeah. And I, it's almost important to point out like all three of us lived together and all three of us had a great love for movies and cinema and stuff. Yeah. Right. So we we're sharing a lot of the same interests. And if one person heard about a movie, we get to subject the other ones to watching it. And there weren't as many distractions of all. I have to say that carefully because we were going to school full time <laughs> and there were a lot of studies that we should have been doing but quite frankly every single night we were watching a movie or two and really re-watching movies quite a bit too so it became important to buy a few titles and kind of like become aware of who's going to buy what and instead of in Donnie Darko case it wouldn't surprise me if all three of us had this movie on DVD in our modest collections at the same time oh at some point yeah when uh as, as we went through, I'm sure that when we were living together, everyone had yeah. a copy at some point. It's just like, uh, right. also movies like certain, like Memento we all had and like alien and aliens, the whole alien, all the alien films, um, the Godfather films, I'm sure we all had, but like all, it was a bunch of kind of classic movies. I don't know if you ever had the boondock saints. That was another one from around I that time. I remember watching it with you, but I don't, um, I never owned that one, but there was a bunch around that time, a bunch of movies. It was, I don't know. There was something very special for me. I don't know if it was, partially partially it's got to be due to nostalgia but that late 90s early 2000s era of films were well, there some of those movies like in that landscape that donnie darko emerged out of still holds a special place in my heart and it's just donnie darko is simultaneously uh it's frustrating because it defies interpretation but at the same time mm -hmm. it's kind of it's kind of comforting for me to go back to and watch this film that despite all of its eccentricities and despite all of its resistance to interpretation um, and, and giving out easy answers, even in terms of like, you know, defiance of like describing the plot yeah. in any coherent way. Um, I love watching this movie. There's just something about like, it was well-made obviously, but for me personally, I have a personal connection to this film that kind of, it maybe takes me back to that time and that place in our lives. Definitely. I, I often consider those early 2000s to be this golden age of cinema for me where, yeah. I mean, hitting 20, 21, whatever, really getting to explore these movies and having easier access to a lot of movies with renting them and discovering them through 
you guys and other people and yeah. having the online mix in there, it just opened up the whole world. And oh, sorry, I just thought of another movie, Equilibrium. <laughs> sorry, yeah, I'm just like I'm thinking of all these. Uh, yeah. These different well, there's movies. so many good ones, and and it's funny. Like oftentimes, if I'm looking for a comfort movie, like some people say, "Oh, I want one that maybe makes me feel good. It's light. It's comedic. It's whatever it is." But for me, comfort movies are these 2000 to like 2004 films. Like a comfort movie for me is Mulholland Drive. Yeah, you know, early 2000s is just like, oh, this brings me back to all those days of sort of less responsibility to some degree depends on your perspective but, but also there was like just some groundbreaking kind of experimental stuff you look at 99 where you had like stuff like fight club or the matrix um mm-hmm. and then you look at the early 2000s where we, all those films we were talking about alongside um donnie darko like memento um chris nolan's um one of his not his very first film i think maybe his, his second film second or third but just all these films that really kind of kind of defied expectations or exceeded expectations in terms of, of genre and narrative and kind of pushed the boundaries, especially for audiences that were kind of raised on yeah. the mainstream cinema and blockbusters. I think some of these films are really our, our gateway into going down. Like since then we've really expanded out our tastes and, and really mm-hmm. explored film, the kind of stuff that you wouldn't necessarily see um, advertised alongside your Marvel's Avengers, right? Well, well, that's it too. It's like this generation of movies, I, I feel as though has kept me anchored into fairly original story-driven, character-driven yeah. narratives where our industry has really gone down the road of sequels, franchises, adaptations, the whole nine yards to become a little more generic, maybe, is probably a word that is not entirely appropriate but is well i think i think the i think for me it's about the commodi- commoditization of a yes. film and art that's a, yeah where perfect. you people are referring to tv shows and movies and music as content as opposed to art and opposed to you know mm-hmm. people used to yeah yeah you know back in the 2000s people were still telling stories as opposed to producing content or some as a you know there's a very kind of corporate cold calculating way to look at these artistic expressions that are really examining kind of fundamental questions about what it means to be human um, and which Donnie Darko does. Maybe um, we want to get into the film itself. Do we want to start off with a quick um, kind of overview? I and mean, it's hard movie to describe, yeah. but uh, what is that? Uh, what is letterbox? How do they boil it down a letterbox? <laughs> yeah. Th- this is the letterbox, like, you know, one sentence overview. <laughs> After narrowly escaping a bizarre accident, a troubled teenager is plagued by visions of a large bunny rabbit that manipulates him to commit a series of crimes. Does that do the movie justice? <laughs> Not even I close. Mean, but Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is accurate. It's just like Donnie Darko does escape a, a bizarre accident of a jet engine falling onto his house and directly into his bedroom and... He is sort of uh, led to commit some crimes in his in his neighborhood to a school, based on his encounters with a possibly imaginary yeah. giant bunny rabbit that is <laughs> creepy as all heck. It's as accurate as saying that uh, Jaws is about a couple of guys hunting a shark. I mean, yeah, <laughs> it doesn't. Well, it, it's technically correct, yeah. but doesn't quite capture, um, you know, the depth and the layers of what's going on. And Donnie Darko is. A film that is very complex 
uh, in terms of how the film is constructed, um, but also very dense in terms of like the themes and ideas that it's exploring. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those movies, like one of the reasons that Donnie Doko, I think has, has stuck with me and with a lot of people. Um, it's a film that simultaneously it demands, but also evades explanation um, yes. where you have to watch it. It's not one of those bra- It's not one of those movies where you can um, quote unquote, turn off your brain and watch it and just it's enjoyable on another level, but you have to, you have to actively engage with Donnie Darko yes. and you have to figure out, follow the breadcrumbs, look at the clues and create your own interpretation. And one of the great things in the dialogue around this film is that the director slash writer, Richard Kelly, even though in his director's cut, he obviously has his own interpretation of what's going on in the film. He's specifically been very good in interviews um, about evading that question and telling interviewers and people that, the movie, as he wrote it, is up for people's interpretation. There's no one yeah. correct answer. And that the whole point of the movie was that it was written and, you know, filmed in such a way that it's open to multiple interpretations and that those puzzle pieces can fit into multiple different configurations depending on your own personal point of view. Um, and that's one of the amazing things about this movie. And I think it's one of the things that keeps people coming back. And one of the reasons why it's now, you know, um, yeah. has a, this crazy, awesome 4K edition on an Arrow box set, yeah. right? I think that's one of the reasons that it was very significant too. Uh, seeing it for the first time is that it really introduces me to a world of cinema where things happen in a movie that will never get explained. Are open to that interpretation, yeah. and it's just like that's okay. We don't need all the answers in a movie. We don't need to know exactly how things played out. We want to go on for the emotional roller coaster. And really, what perfect scenario to watch this, experience a movie that sort of defies ex- traditional explanation, and watch it with a group of friends to all look at each other afterwards and just sort of be like, what did we just watch there? And <laughs> it spur a whole line of conversation and dialogue over what you got out of it, right? I mean, that first time watching it, I don't, I don't even remember, it was so long ago, but I do remember talking about it in, in fairly great detail. Oh, yeah. And going online and trying to find more information out, what did other people think about this movie? What what interpretations do you have here? What theories are out there? It was really it's pretty interesting stuff to this day. It is still a hot topic whenever it comes up in, in online communities. The director's cut, I didn't really realize this until I was looking it up recently, is that that was more of a uh, production company marketing thing, to call it a director's cut. And Richard Kelly was 100% satisfied with the theatrical cut, but he was given an opportunity to go back in with a little bit more money and get some of the music changes he wanted because some of the music that he wanted was a little too pricey for the original budget. So he changed the music and I know the music choices are controversial in the director's cut, but also just kind of add in more, more details here and expand upon the film. And we have two different copies of the movie. One of which I think we've traditionally kind of dismissed. We fell in love with the theatrical cut. We got a hold of the director's cut and kind of did not like it. How, do you feel about the director's cut now? And I know this because you said you watched it alongside this one. Like you watched both the theatrical and director's cut. 
like in the past few days, right? Yeah, to get ready for this. I realized I hadn't watched Donnie Darko in, in a, it must have been like a, a year or two. Um, but it's one of those movies because we watched one of the movies yeah. that was in our regular rotation. So we watched it dozen, literally dozens of times over the course of several years. So it's kind of burned it in my brain. Um, so kind of coming back to this, um, but really it is one of my favorite movies. And it's one of the times, one of the few times, because normally for me, I find the director's cut usually ends up being... Um, the better cut of the movies. Uh, maybe I'm thinking yeah. too much about, I think Ridley Scott is really the king of the director's cuts. Like his director's cuts almost consistently are, mm-hmm. are better movies than the theatrical releases. Um, but this was one of the instances where um, the director's cut of Donnie Darko for me um, was all the content they put back in and all the changes they made, um, except for maybe one or two beats were all unequivocally worse. They all detracted from the, greatness yeah, of the original movie um and you can see going through in terms of just in terms of like even the pacing um how the rhythm feels kind of thrown off by putting some of these um scenes back in some of the which were i think they were all almost almost exclusively all the scenes that they put in were deleted scenes on the original dvd yes but then they also used a couple alternate takes in a couple scenes mm-hmm. that from my opinion were both worse as well, but everything about it, the theatrical, in, yeah. in my opinion, the theatrical cut of Donnie Darko is superior in every way, shape or form. And for me, the definitive um, version of the film. Yeah. So I ended up watching because you, you messaged me late last yeah. night. Well, maybe not too late, but you messaged me last night saying you're watching the director's cut. And I realized I hadn't seen that cut in probably 15 years. Yeah. And I, during that time, I was already watching the theatrical cut. It was about 15 minutes from being over and I had enough time for a double feature. Usually I put on a second movie completely unrelated to the first one. I said, well, you know what? I better put on that director's cut. So I ended up watching both cuts of the movie back to back. Oh, which, back to back. Which uh, I, I don't necessarily recommend. I was pretty exhausted with it afterwards, but I was pretty intrigued and surprised myself that I liked the director's cut more than I remember. I remember kind of having more of a hatred for it before but I think I can appreciate what he was doing with the director's cut this time around. One of the criticisms that I think we had way back in the day, and I could be making this up, is that the director's cut was almost explaining too much of the movie because not only do you have the timeline of the film sort of counting down with the 28 days, you had pages from the philosophy of time travel interspersed into the film that acted as a secondary set of title cards, which I do think... It kind of jars the pacing of it there, but would basically tell you straight up what is going on. It, it like it tells you explicitly sort that of? Donnie is like the the what what what, what do they call it? The there? living re- living receiver, the living receiver, right? And I think because we had experienced the film with a the theatrical cut, and we were able to explore those DVD special features, which had some pages from that that uh, fictional book that we were able to piece a lot of that stuff together and then we're sort of told more explicitly what's going on. But I definitely understand that even after watching the director's cut now, it still leaves everything completely open for interpretation. Like it is not set in stone how things transpired, right? There's so much room to look at what happened and what things mean and what they mean to you. There is. I didn't hate the director's cut as much as I remember hating it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was mostly the pacing. Yeah. Maybe we're getting a little softer in our old age. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, one of the jarring changes 
in the director's cut, which I actually made a note on, was was a sound effect change wherein in the climax of the movie, uh, Donnie goes back to the house with his dead girlfriend and he leaves in the car. And then we sort of cut to two police cars racing down the street. And instead of hearing the sirens as we do in the theatrical cut, we hear like a blaring helicopter. We don't see a helicopter on screen, but we're (laughs) treated to a helicopter. I'm like, so this is like an artificial way of trying to like escalate like the seriousness of the events that just happened in some way. It felt very jarring and maybe like back to back like that. It's just like, I'm going to notice a few things like that. There were a lot of little tiny scenes and extensions of of scenes. One thing I noted as well in the director's cut is that people are more mean to one another. Like there's more bullying. There's bullies in this movie, but it's like there's more scenes of bullying that I felt were completely unnecessary. They just made those characters even worse. And they're already really bad. Well, I think Donnie Darko's one friend there gets a couple beats that make him out to be a complete yes. and total jerk. I was like, why did they put that back in? It was just like, there's no, it just made him, made Donnie Darko by association, made him, I was like, why is he hanging out with these jerks? Yeah, his one buddy is essentially a racist, right? Yeah. And that's in the theatrical cut. And then he says something else later on in the movie. He's like, okay, we, we get that his buddy is bad. He's, we don't need to be him. Even worse, because, yeah, as you said, that by association, Donnie is now even worse off because of his association. But yeah, I think these are little nitpicks here, I guess. Yeah, I mean, for me, like, and then they changed, like, the opening song to, like, that In Excess song. Um, yeah. I can't remember what the name of it was. It was really, That's one of the big uh, controversial really, things. Really, really jarring. I think some of the um, additions from the director's cut that I really don't mind were some of the more interactions between Donnie Darko and his family. Yes. Because at, at its core, I think what really, one of the strengths of Donnie Darko is that it is, at its heart, it's a character-driven film. Despite all the potential mm. sci-fi slash supernatural elements, it's a character-driven film. So to see those beats where there was one scene with between Donnie Darko and his dad, um, and his dad was giving him some advice, and it's like, there's a really poignant kind of touching moment between father and son, or when... Um, Donnie Darko was carving a pumpkin with his sister Elizabeth because yes. this takes place around yeah. uh, Halloween. Just those little kind of family beats to kind of flesh out those characters. I didn't mind those. One of the uh, more significant ones for me was when he's saying goodbye to his mom and his younger sister as they take their trip, right? It's almost like he accepted his fate during that time and he was that moment of clarity saying goodbye, saying I love you type of thing. It just really strengthened that, yeah. that family more. So. But on the other hand, I can see why all that stuff was also cut. The only thing I would have kept yeah. in was, like, I think, because I think Donnie Darko gets a moment with his mom at one point where there's a story because um, Donnie Darko, I don't know if we touched on it, but he is um, a troubled young man. Um, he obviously, um, his therapist said he was having a diagnosis was potentially paranoid schizophrenic. Yeah. Um, he's obviously, he's had problems with, um, seeing things that aren't there. Like, um, the aforementioned, um, <laughs> Frank, Fra- the, Frank rabbit. the bunny who is yep. horrifying beyond all comprehension. Make a great <laughs> tattoo though. So maybe, maybe if we get matching tattoos someday, we should get, uh, yeah. Frank the bunny. <laughs> um, but he, ha- he has a moment with his, with his mom, he also, he makes mention of he accidentally burned down a house and he got into some, some problems. So he's yeah. had a pretty troubled 
youth and he's going to therapy, potentially paranoid, schizophrenic, depressed, and he's having these blackout periods where he ends up sleeping on golf courses in the middle of the road. He doesn't know how he got there. Yeah. And he asks his mom at one point, they're having this moment, I think in his bedroom, and he's, he says, like, how's it feel to have a wacko for a son? And um, his mom played to perfection by Mary McDonnell, home of probably a Battle, Battlestar Galactica fame, also yeah. dances with wolves and Independence Day, of course. Um, but she answers back. Um, really, her delivery is amazing on this. But she says, it feels wonderful. Mm -hmm. Right. So just like reinforcing that acceptance. She accepts her son and she loves him unconditionally. And there's like that beautiful moment. And I think we're in the theatrical cut, we're kind of missing that same moment with his dad. So I think the only change for me that I would really put back in would have been that, that conversation between Donnie Darko and his dad to have that kind of moment with both both of his parents. Yeah. I think to me that was a really kind of touching moment and I, that wouldn't have broken up the pacing too much. But aside from that, everything else in the director's cut, I would not... I, I understand completely why his editor told Richard Kelly or to yeah. cut all that stuff out. Well, the director's cut is nearly 20 minutes longer than the theatrical and that's a pretty sizable change uh, when you start considering all the little scenes they add back in, extended scenes and and you know extra title cards and et cetera. But it sounds like there would be a happy medium between adding a few more minutes to the theatrical cut to uh, reinforce some of those family themes and add to the story without slowing it down. Well, just those bits of character, because like one of the, some of the best parts, like that family dinner with the Darkos early on, mm. um, the interaction between the whole family um, just um, Elizabeth played by to perfection, of course, by Maggie Gyllenhaal, who is yeah. um, underrated, but one of the best actors working today. I think it's, it's kind of frustrating because Jake Gyllenhaal who plays Donnie Darko and then Maggie Gyllenhaal who plays Elizabeth Darko in the movie. They're siblings in real life. Yeah. It's kind of frustrating how, ta how much talent is in this one family. <laughs> when you look at it, it's like, Oh, I wish I could do one, one thing great yeah. and it's like this whole fa this family is just like <laughs> both these siblings are super talented i think yeah. maggie's now even like directing movies i think her, her first movie came out recently i can't remember um what it was but just both immensely talented actors and you see them playing off each other um as siblings in the movie um it's kind of like you know semi-playful sibling rivalry mm -hmm. but then you get like those beats where parents are obviously conservative slash republicans and Elizabeth says, oh, I'm voting for Dukakis, who was the yeah. Democratic nominee at the time um, for president, who eventually, of course, loses um, what people... I know we're getting to U.S. U.S. Uh, presidential history. It's really interesting stuff. Well, he loses to um, George, Bush, right? George H.W. Bush. Bush. Yep. So the movie takes place in 1988. 1988, yeah. But like, she says she's voting for Dukakis. Um, and then her parents are both kind of pushing back on her. Um, but then you see this loving family where it's like, yeah, they're... The parents get more upset about politics than they do about their older yeah. children, like swearing in front of their nine-year-old daughter, and like they're all kind of laughing about. You can cut this out, Brian, but it's like when the when the Donnie Darko tells her to like tells Elizabeth to go suck a fuck. Yeah, and <laughs> oh no, no, he calls her a fuck ass, and yeah. then Elizabeth says, "Well, you can go suck a fuck." And it's like, well, exactly how does one suck a fuck? It's like, well, you want me to tell you? And he's like, he does that thing. It's like, I'm all ears. Yeah. No, I really appreciated like the, the parents and adding that, those little extra bits of depth to them. Like they didn't have to bring the politics in, but it adds so much to those characters, to the sisters, to the parents, everyone. I could appreciate the later scene too, where 
uh, Donnie's in trouble with the um, with the uh, sort of the annoying teacher there who's trying to push all these, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the, Mrs. the Farmer? fear values on people. Yeah, Miss Farmer. The, the great and, the great Beth Grants, by the way. Yeah. Um, well, Beth, this is the thing. I sometimes yeah. doubt your commitment to smart, Sparkle Motion Grant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is the thing. The movie is so full of talent, like so many talented actors that just do a really bang up job here. But yeah, yeah no, I, I appreciate the later dynamics of everyone kind of recognizing her insanity, but trying to respect her a little bit too. So when Donnie gets in trouble with her, they're not necessarily punishing him because of what he did, because they kind of recognize this person, Miss Farmer has it coming to her. You know what I mean? Like they agree <laughs> with what Donnie did, but there's a director's cut scene where they're at, the parents are at dinner and they're like, you know, we probably should punish them for what he said. Evan, it just sort of, they just keep going on from there, right? It's not that big of a deal. I think Mary McDonald, who plays his mom, Rose, he says, like, he needs to face consequences. Mm-hmm. And the dad's, like, uh, the dad who's Eddie Darko, played by Holmes Osborne, who's, again, spot on, perfect casting, a great, uh, you know, strong, lovable presence as as his father. His mom says something about, like, grounding him or making mm-hmm. him face consequences. And his dad says, like, yeah, I think we should buy him, like, a moped. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and they keep going. It's like, yeah, you want to, and it's like, and she goes, retorts back. It's like, I think we should get a divorce, and they, and they turn to each other. It's like, oh, she's serious. Like, no, they're just like, it's that kind of. Well, they break out in smiles. Yeah, and it's just like, oh, that is kind of their type of humor together, right? That kind of sar- sarcastic kind of, but you get those, get that sense of like, it's like any family. Um, they're gonna, they're gonna fight and they're gonna have their disagreements, but like, you get the sense of a very kind of loving. Um, close-knit supportive family even when later on in the movie when um, Elizabeth gets accepted into Harvard and Donnie Darko is like we should throw a party we should celebrate yeah. you getting into Harvard right right so those great little character beats and I think for anything like for sci-fi or you know paranormal or any kind of narrative involving those extraordinary topics in those kind of genres you really need to be grounded in other elements like the like in character yeah. right like you look at something like alien, sci-fi movie but what really grounds that movie is the interaction between the characters right and i think exactly smartly um donnie darko is um grounded in character smartly it's a character driven piece even though it has those that's sci-fi always the focus elements yeah, yeah it's, that's always the focus of like how how these characters are responding to the craziness going on around them and there is a lot of craziness going on around them now did you want to hit us with kind of your theory on what happened during this this whole film here? Like, how do you want to approach the the subject? <laughs> well, again, one of the things I think that keeps drawing us back in and drawing everybody else, other fans back in, is the fact that there is no definitive interpretation out there. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so, like, it's it's kind of one of those movies that it's just so perfectly constructed, the theatrical cut that is (laughs) so perfectly constructed. (laughs) It is one of those perfect cinematic mirrors that you look directly into this, or maybe as Jim Cunningham's AKA Patrick Swayze um, might say, you look not just not look at your reflection in the mirror, but look through your reflection, look through the mirror. (laughs) But I think this is one of those movies that perfectly encapsulates that idea of art as a reflection or art as a reflection of life or reflection of self where whatever you, whatever you're bringing to this movie, however you're looking at it, that's what gets reflected kind of back at you or maybe 
um, you know, twisted in a in a prism and, and come out yeah. the other way, um, come out the other side. But it deals with a lot of different a lot of different topics. If you want me to touch base on some of these things, yeah, please get started on this. Like, yeah. do you want to go you know, like like literally what I think happens in terms of the narrative, or do you want to talk about like thematically what the movie is about? Like, where do you want to start with that? Well, what did you pull out of the movie thematically? Okay, that's the easier question. Good. <laughs> still, still very difficult, but still, still easier than making sense of of the structure narratively. I think one of the things that stood out to me in rewatching Donnie Darko, and one of the things that's always stood out to me, one of the key questions or key things that Donnie Darko examines is that tension between predestination and mm-hmm. free will, um, which I think if you look at kind of ongoing dialogue between Donnie Darko and his teacher, Mr. Monotov played mm-hmm. by Noah Wiley. Once Donnie goes and asks Mr. Monotov about time travel and he gives, and then Mr. Monotov gives him this book, the philosophy of time travel, which is a fake book written by Roberta Sparrow in the context of this movie universe. And they start talking about what would, they start talking about issues of, of, predestination and fate. And at one point in the movie, Donnie starts to see these, what he refers to as spears emanating from people's chest. They look like the water tentacles from, from the abyss, but they come out of people's chest and and essentially they'll come out of your chest and you'll follow them. And essentially what, what Donnie thinks he's seeing is um, this visual manifestation of people's destinies or people's yeah. fates. Like where they're literally walking to next. Yeah. So literally it's like everyone is on a set path and yeah. he's able to see that path. But one of the things, the interesting things he gets into in this movie with giant talking bunnies and time travel and alternate universes. So Donnie and Mr. Monotov get into a philosophical debate, an argument that if people had predestined fate, which he also refers to Donnie, that is, as a form of time travel, right? If you could see your own mm-hmm. future, just seeing your future, that's a form of time travel, right? Yeah. Which is an interesting yeah. concept in and of itself. But if you could see your fate, then you could change your fate, uh, which Mr. Monotov quickly points out is a paradox, right? Because like, if yeah. you're talking about predestination, if you can change your predestined path, then predestination doesn't exist, yeah. right? So I think which speaks to a larger theme of the movie, for me... Donnie Darko is all about paradoxes, right? Yeah. And specifically, if you look at life and you look at life's big questions, a lot of how we look at life can be broken down into these paradoxes or these tensions between contradictory ideas that have no clear resolution. And I think that that predestination versus free will is one of the the best examples in the movie exploring those ideas of those of those paradoxes that we have to live with and that we we have to grapple with that can never be really truly solved it's always a matter of interpretation and so that's one of the great things to me about that whole that whole conversation back and forth and i like that there's a uh, explicit example of that in another scene with uh, his other teacher miss farmer who is sort of buying into uh, cunningham's uh, motivational speaking and sort of his his stuff where they're, all the students are given a card with a scenario on it, and they have to place that card on a scale of fear and love. And like the scale is binary, right? Yeah. And it's just like Donnie's essentially arguing about uh, his scenario where someone finds a wallet and returns it without the money. And it. it's like, where does that lie on the scale of fear and love? And it's just like, 
There's a lot more going on at stake. For some reason in my mind, maybe because that's just such a classic moral scenario, is that in my mind, the movie had had him say, well, what if he needs the money to go feed his family or something? But he, he doesn't explicitly call that, but he, he implies that there's a lot more to these scenarios where it's just, it's not one or the other. There's all sorts of extra stuff going on around these decisions. That's a great scene as well, because that ties into one of the other key themes, which was, or two of the other key themes, really. Uh, one was the idea of, there's another paradox inherent in the movie with portraying how Donnie challenges authority and challenges the status quo and also kind of deconstructing that, you know, suburban life and finding that darkness that's kind of buried behind that curtain of, you know, respectability that everybody tries to put up. Um, but that scene you're referring to. So first of all, to give some context. So in the context of the movie, Jim Cunningham is this self-help guru from the eighties, yeah. um, real snake oil salesman, type mm -hmm. guy selling like just really nonsensical, the, the same kind of nonsensical self-help um, pleasantries um, and niceties that really he's saying nothing, but it sounds like he's saying something profound. And so Mrs. Farmer, um, one of the teachers, she gets really, really caught up with his philosophy. And in the actual movie in Donnie Darko, they actually put together <laughs> Um, his uh, like 80 style um, self-help videos starring Patrick Swayze, yes. who plays the character, yeah. <laughs> really done to a T, like perfectly encapsulating like the 80 style of uh, of those like really amateur kind of filmmaking. Um, but she really buys into this and he boils everything down to this really simplistic viewpoint of every decision and action in human life coming down to either being a product of fear or a product of love. Yeah. And so there's this kind of, paradox where we want to as human beings i think we want to simplify life down it's like oh i wish everything were easy to understand i wish we could yeah. just simplify everything down to these binaries but acknowledging as donnie does where he specifically says it's like oh yeah like that whole scenario about returning the wallet but keeping the money has nothing to, uh, to do with either fear or love it's like mm. you're forgetting about the entire spectrum of human emotions that life even though we want life to be simple so that we can understand it we need life to be more complicated. We need to have an understanding of that more complicated life because yeah. the world doesn't work on those kind of binary extremes. Um, there's kind of some dark comedy in there where he gets called into the principal's office afterwards after telling uh, Mrs. Farmer to uh, quote unquote, forcibly insert the lifeline exercise card into her anus. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but again, that ties into so all these themes kind of tie together. But again, that's part of how Donnie Darko is challenging authority, right? Where he's speaking truth to power, right? He's challenging Mrs. Farmer in front of the class, telling mm -hmm. her that this self-help stuff is nonsense. When Jim Cunningham comes to the school to give his speech, right? And then Donnie Darko gets up and challenges him. It says, how much are they paying you to yeah. be here? Keeps pushing back and gets him, finally telling him is like, oh, I think you're the fucking antichrist. So like part of it is like this... Um, idea of, of pushing back against conformity, right? You see visually represented on the screen is like the kids are all wearing uniforms. You know, the teachers are trying to teach this very set curriculum when somebody, one of the teachers teaches something outside of their curriculum that challenges authority and challenges the, the status quo. Yeah. She's punished. The book is immediately banned. I think she's fired later on. 
she's fired yeah which is, which is which is so brutal it's like especially like in the middle of a, like a school term she's just let go yeah it's kind of it's kind of nuts but there's that undercurrent of um so there's a couple themes that work there right we talked about that kind of complexity of life that defies um our urge to be to simplify things down to more um easily understandable kind of bits but also challenging challenging authority which donnie darko does successfully but then there's there's a kind of tragedy underlying the movie not just in terms of i guess spoilers um in terms of donnie darko dying at the end Mm -hmm. um but also in terms of the fact that all these things he does also the flooding of the school so he floods the school right Uh, he also burns down jim cunningham's house revealing the uh kitty porn dungeon where apparently yeah Jim Cunningham, who was this kind of supposedly this paragon of virtue, this self-help guru, was actually, I guess, a pedophile slash, um, you know, kitty porn peddler. Um, so he was pulling down these curtains. That was mm-hmm. the big kind of motif really showing like that, you know, showing like the kind of dark side behind that suburban facade and that life. Um, but all that stuff, no matter whether you read the film as all taking place in the deranged mind of a paranoid schizophrenic or the read it is actually Donnie Darko was in an alternate universe an alternate parallel dimension where all this stuff was happening at the end, when he goes back in time, um, none of that stuff happens. All his challenging of authority never happened. Jim Cunningham is still, as far as we know, um, peddling um, child pornography. Um, His teacher um, is eventually going to Mrs. His teacher, Mrs. Pomeroy, played by Drew Barrymore, is probably going to get fired again for teaching yep. It Was the Destructors by Graham Greene. Um, so all all the advances that he made in challenging that authority, in, in kind of deconstructing and pulling back the curtain of that suburban facade, all of his victories are essentially kind of meaningless. I mean, the only yeah. victory he has are essentially the, the half-remembered dreams of the all the people involved, the people in the town who kind of have sort of get memories from the alternate dimension, but only as kind of these half remembered dreams when they, when they wake up. Yeah. They're more like feelings or they don't know what they've just experienced. Right. Yeah. So there's this really kind of tragic note at the end where, um, Donnie Darko fights back against authority and authority (laughs) wins in the end. He fights back against. I never thought about that, but you're right. It's just like, with the teacher, especially Drew Barrymore's teacher, like, you know, she's not actively going against authority, but she's trying to get students to think kind of outside the box and, and play into more mature readings in her classroom. And she's basically punished because of it. It's like uh, the authority is the school and the uh, Miss Farmer and Miss Farmer basically gets the principal on board with bringing Jim Cunningham on, not only just to like guest speak, but he's in a number of scenes at the school. Like he's almost like a spiritual advisor to the principal and the leadership at the school, which is even more disturbing when you discover that he is a peddler of, of, of child pornography. It's just really, really brutal. And it's like those people still win in the end. Well, it's funny too, because it shows how through Mrs. Farmer's reaction, how people want to cling to these illusions in their life where she, she and other, other parents, convince themselves that it's all a giant conspiracy that the firefighters or somebody else planted the child I thought pornography that was really relevant yeah 
Yeah, it's it's really relevant today looking at the political landscape yeah. and the if people are like so willing to look at evidence and dismiss it and think, yes, this is a conspiracy going on. This person couldn't possibly do this. Yeah. And uh, it's so important because Miss Farmer runs the uh, Sparkle Motion like dance team of of their kids. And she actually believes in Cunningham so much that she's willing to put aside her responsibilities there and give it to Donnie's mother, who and this is it's so rude. Miss Farmer basically tells us, like, you're the last person I want to have involved on this team, <laughs> yeah. but we have to go protect, we have to go stand up to, for Jim Cunningham's defense here. And you're thinking, the evidence is right there. Like, it's all revealed. You're wasting your time, but they, they are. They are so hardened in their beliefs and views of this man's uh, right. stuff. And I don't think it's a coincidence that um, she's also portrayed as very religious as well. I think in that scene where she goes to ask um, Rose Darko to take over as chaperone for the yeah. Sparkle Motion dance team. She's wearing like a God is Awesome shirt. You know, religion and those other institutions of authority play into that construction of suburban life that's supposed to be this idyllic, perfect setting where there's no problems going on. And like she's like Mrs. Farmer is desperately trying to cling to that illusion of suburban life, uh, even when the curtains pulled back and you see all the ugliness that it's trying to hide. I'm yeah. um, trying not to, to use a, a loaded term, trying to trying to whitewash essentially, right? Yeah. Whitewash all away all the darkness in the past, and she's clinging desperately to that illusion. And, and I want to also talk about the other teacher who is sort of the you know the good teacher uh, played by Noah Weil who is kind of like the science teacher that Donnie goes to and introduces them to the book that you mentioned earlier. And they get to talk about time travel and they do break into a bunch of talk on religion. And, and you know, they mention like God's path and all this stuff. And when Donnie is asking these questions about God, that teacher has to shut down the conversation. He's like, well, you know what? We can't talk about this anymore. And Donnie's like, why, why not? He's like, well, I, I could get fired for doing this. And mm. then you have this other teacher who is so ingrained in religion and clearly like letting it influence her students and trying to bring it in, but she's doing it in kind of a roundabout way, bringing in Cunningham and all these others to bring those religious morals and beliefs into the classroom. Meanwhile, they can't have a frank conversation about religion because that goes against the school, right? Yeah. There's certain ironies involved there um, yeah. in terms of like people. And I think those conversations are still happening today about about censorship and about, um, you know, banning um, books or banning literature that present viewpoints that yeah. you don't agree with or that challenge the status quo. And so all these themes are still really, really prevalent and I think relevant even even today, which is 20, 20 years after the film was made and 30, 30 some odd years after the film was set to still be having those same kind of conversations and still be fighting those same kind of battles. Yeah. Um, you kind of feel stuck in a time loop ourselves sometimes, right? Yeah. Yeah. If you want to have more themes to mention here. Right. So I think just want to expand like on suburban conformity, right? Or sub the suburban life slash conformity. I think we talked about pulling back the curtain on the quote unquote modern suburban, suburban life, obviously with Jim Cunningham, um, the self-help guru, uh, complete cheese ball. Um, yeah. nothing useful to, uh, to say revealed to be running a child pornography ring. Um, obviously, you know, the censorship and banning of books and literature that threatens the existing hierarchy and the, the structure of authority. Um, I think also it's worth noting, I think the whole dance competition slat of, you know, sparkle motion and Samantha Darko, Donnie Darko's younger sisters on the dance team, 
But um, I think it's worth pointing out, like the superficiality, um, vicarious accomplishments, and unrealistic yeah. expectations that are embodied by that kind of pageant slash dance culture. Yeah, that one stood out to me more in this viewing than it has in, in previous years, especially as we get more exposure into kind of exploiting our children in this way. And in this movie, yeah. it's a little more light, but we understand now with the greater context of our own reality of how much we put our kids through to perform in these like talent competitions and to be beautiful and all this really awful stuff that shouldn't be like pushed onto children so much. Yeah. And it's like, it, there's a bit of an undertone in this movie about that and that sparkle motion uh, sequence and, and, yeah. and thread. But there's a, there's that kind of, again, that underlying darkness that's kind of being hidden by that curtain yeah. of perfect suburban life. I mean, even you look at school, uh, the students are all wearing uniforms an obvious visual mm -hmm. representation of that push towards conformity, not just of um, action, but more importantly of thought. And that's the really dangerous thing where yeah. what I love about um, that scene where Donnie Darko was challenging Jim Cunningham publicly, where um, there was a, I think there was three kids that he pulled up on stage that came up to the mic and had these problems that they were want to deal with. And Jim Cunningham kept coming back to them with these um, useless pleasantries about, Oh, yeah. that's a product of fear. It was like, you need to, you know, embrace love. And like Donnie Darko comes up and starts kind of speaking like, harsh truths to them yeah. um where he's like yeah if you want your sister to lose weight tell her to get up off the couch and stop eating twinkies if you want to like the other guy is like i don't know what i want to be when i grow up and he's like nobody knows what they want to be when they grow up you take some time to figure it out yeah. it's, not, it's not fear or love and the other kid was like yeah you don't want to get your head pushed in the toilet anymore by bullies like take a karate class uh and then kick kick the guy in the balls like protect yourself it's like like yeah these you can't just like boil everything down to these simple kind of pleasantries you actually have to look at the actual problem and it's sometimes it's 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 difficult actually just naming the problem and naming and, and just speaking that truth out loud and you see people like gasping and it's like all the stuff he's saying is like or all the things that people wish they could say right and it's i enjoy that that kid was like a plant in the audience to come up with a problem because that kid was also seen in one of the like the infomercials that Jim Cunningham I'm made. I'm not afraid anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> I used to think it was normal for a 10 year old to wet the bed. <laughs> I'm a survivor of fear. <laughs> but I think that was something that whole like suburban life slash conformity. I don't think that was a theme that I necessarily picked up on when I was younger, but yeah. now that I'm, in a decade that I choose not to mention of my life. Um, <laughs> still coming to terms with that? <laughs> still coming to terms with that a little bit. But looking back on that and seeing as like, oh yeah, there's a there's a kind of a, a, a takedown or a send up. I don't know if it would be yeah. classified as satire or parody, but really deconstruction of kind of our, our modern suburban um, life. Um, it, it takes place in the States, but I think it's um, applicable. It's applicable, yeah whether you're in the States or Canada or, or in uh Yeah. Like the suburbs are so prevalent in, in North America as like this town could literally exist in any of our, any of the cities that we were familiar with here. Like, yeah. One of the other big themes I think tends to get overlooked because it's so obvious is that the film is also, it's a heartbreaking portrayal of mental illness um, yes. and the toll it takes on an individual and, and their families. I mean, you look at, if you were to strip all the sci-fi elements away from this movie and just look at Donnie Darko, you know, and his, you know, he's, he's seeing things, he's losing time. He's waking up on, on golf courses and places. He doesn't know how he got there. 
Um, he's obviously he's engaging in, in acts of, of violence and uh, arson and, and destruction. And then you look at he's being diagnosed by his doctor, um, Dr. Thurman, as potentially being, you know, paranoid schizophrenic. And he's having yeah. what she refers to as uh, waking daydreams. Mm-hmm. There's a scene where he um, calls his mother a bitch. And you can immediately see the regrets yeah. that he has, but he doesn't. He doesn't know how to repair that bridge right away because he's only he's he's a kid. He's a teenager, right? He doesn't yeah. know how to deal with that, and the parents don't really know. You see, the parents are ill-equipped, as most of us would be as lay people, to deal with that level of you know serious mental illness. And the poignant moment that I described earlier between Donnie and his mother, where she's you know trying to um, express to him that. She loves him unconditionally, no matter what kind of challenges he's facing. But obviously to see, like, she's constantly, you see the mother, Rose, is constantly drinking. Um, the father is, he's... He's, abs- he's kind of absent because there's that one scene where he's kind of saying, oh, this incident happened. We're not allowed to talk to people, but you tell your therapist about this. And he says, well, what's her name again? Like, he doesn't know his son's therapist name like this doctor but yeah. he said said he didn't but i think that avoidance is kind of natural it's like he doesn't the yeah. father doesn't know quite how to deal with it emotionally so he's yeah. kind of avoiding it the one interpretation of the film which we're going to get into like th- it could be that the events of the film all happen inside the mind of a paranoid schizophrenic that these yes. are all delusions that it was all happening inside donnie darko's head and the, the catharsis at the end was just donnie coming to grips with especially essentially like he finds peace essentially in death that he would, he, yeah. he knew he could never find in life. And so you look at that. Um, it's often, I think glossed over maybe because it is such an obvious thing that Donnie is seeing visions and he's dealing with these severe mental illness, but like yeah. the film really breaks down. Um, if you look at it just from that point of view, just how, like how m- much of an effect that has and how emotionally draining it is to, have to to manage that personally, but have to you know manage that together as a family with your loved ones and the, and the effect that has. I think that's for me, especially growing older and seeing um, you know people's challenges um, that mm-hmm. I know. Um, I think that hits a little bit harder now, um, knowing the effect that that can have. Definitely, you want to talk about some of these interpretations? Oh yeah, baby, you know it. In talking about the sort of the theories, like the interpretations, there's five popular fan theories i just wanted to float past everyone here basically five yeah. whole theories and not in too much detail here but um I, i'm curious we'll we'll mention these event we'll get into our own interpretation of the film uh, the film's events and see where we sort of land are we allowed to what happens if we're in alignment with, do we have to have original ones above and beyond these five <laughs> no 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 okay no, Whew. no. And and that's the beauty of it. It's like when I'm reading through these lists of theories is that you can mix and match some of these. Like uh, some of them are, are quite valid. And I don't know. I love that the, the film allows you to just sort of place whatever you want onto it. And things can work. There's no wrong answer in how this movie is interpreted and what you take out of it. Right? That's one of the nice things about this movie. One of the top ones here is Donnie was dead the whole time. Right? I'm not sure how that exactly plays out, but that, okay. that could almost be said for just about any movie, right? Especially in this one where... So in that interpretation with like all the events of the film, essentially like his like last minute fantasy before he, as he's, as he's dying kind of thing. Is, That's is, the way I took it. And I think it, it, in my mind, that is a fine theory, but it makes more sense for me to say this is part of his mental illness that he imagined all the events be, just before, right? Or he's just, 
it is what it is. And then the, the second one that I saw a lot of was that it's a time loop, wherein the loop is basically starting when the jet engine crashes down onto their house. And that's why we have a countdown in 28 Ooh, days. But they're so wrong about that when that time loop right? starts, though. Oh. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's the other part is when does the time loop actually start? But it is what it is. Uh, Grandma Death, who is uh, Roberta Sparrow, I mean, yep. in, in the film there, uh, was a living receiver who managed to survive. And the whole thing of the living receiver, this is all from the, the, the philosophy of time travel, is that the living receiver is responsible for sort of realigning the uh, tangent universe and bringing the artifact from the tangent universe back so that it restores the main timeline, so to speak, the main universe, right? Mm -hmm. And so presumably in that theory is that she had to do this before, but part of the thing of the living receiver is it's highly likely that they die doing this, and which is what happens to Donnie. He successfully brings the engine back to the tangent universe somehow and dies in the process. Telekinesis. But yeah. So Roberta Sparrow, Grandma Death here, survived her incident, and that's why she kind of is a little crazy. Like she's depicted... You know, well, as a crazy old woman, it's kind of funny because it never it never occurred to me until I rewatched it this time. It's like that she could possibly have been caught in a time loop at one point as well, too, because she wrote the book, The Philosophy of Time Travel. And like watching yeah. it this time, it kind of clicked. So when I was reading the um, interpretations online, it's like, how did I never put that together before? And that yeah, ties crazy. into another uh, interesting interpretation that I really enjoy is that. Gretchen, who is Donnie Darko's girlfriend, Gretchen Moss, yep. is Grandma Death. And it plays perfectly into that idea that Grandma Ooh. Death is in her own time loop. And you'll notice throughout the movie, Grandma Death is standing in the middle of the, of the road all the time. And she, numerous characters almost hit her every time. The way Gretchen dies at the end of the film is being run over by a car, which would effectively release her from her own time loop, right? I thought that was a really, really neat, so hmm. she kind of, she whispers a few things to Donnie throughout the movie and, and they have this communication, especially like through her book. And so Gretchen, Grandma Death possibly, uses Donnie to help her get out of her own time loop. And the perfect opportunity is when Gretchen is a teenager and is able to get oh, hit by, by the car. I thought that one was really significant. I, I, I think it's completely and utterly wrong, but I love it. <laughs> I love it so much, even though well, yeah. I think it's complete. I disagree with it one hundred percent. I still love that interpretation. That's amazing. <laughs> I, I think it, it. Yeah, I think it was a really interesting one. It's not one I'd ever really ever considered before. That I'm not sure. That I I don't think there's a time loop happening here. Like I don't think Donnie is stuck in a time loop. And there's like one scene that sort of hints at that. Like literally the very first scene of the movie where we we uh, go to Donnie waking up in the middle of the road and he starts to kind of like laugh to himself. And some people take that as meaning he survived the previous time loop and now he has to go again. I'm not buying that whole thing, but I appreciate oh, really? the idea that there are multiple time loops happening for different characters. Hmm. The other one, which was kind of interesting going back to the religion here was Frank is God and Donnie is kind of a Christ like figure moving through God's path. And only because the teacher, uh, Noah Weil, mentions that in order to make time travel possible, he, it, it, there's a bunch of indicators here. and He talks about portals that would sort of act as like a wormhole through time. And he explicitly says it might just take an act of God to open up a portal. 
And what happens in the movie theater later on when Frank shows up is that he says, Donnie, look at the screen. And he, a portal emerges. So I think the interpretation here is Frank is God and open up a portal and is just yeah. convincing Donnie to do more of his, of his acts. There. See, I, I guess, I mean, there's obviously like religious, you know, like Christ metaphors in the film that I think really worked, mm -hmm. but I think it's a stretch. I love the interpretation again, love the yeah. interpretation. Disagree with it one hundred percent. That uh, is God and right. God and Jesus. I think God and Jesus work as like a metaphor. Like the, I think the Christian yeah. mythology works as a metaphor for what's going on, but I don't think exactly it's what what's going on. But again, I love that uh, interpretation, even though I hundred percent disagree with it. All right. So I've heard you say hundred percent disagree on quite a few of these. I want to hear your interpretation of the events of the film here. Um, well, I don't think it's going to differ that much from a lot of the popular theories. I think what's clear um, is that. Donnie is operating uh, for most of the movie. He's operating in a, in an alternate timeline slash alternate dimension. Yep. But actually watching it this time, this is the first time I actually did conceive of potentially that it wasn't the first time that Donnie had completed this loop. That okay. Potentially he could have been going through this multiple times um, before the, at the end. He finally kind of quote unquote closes the loop by accepting his, his death. Yeah. Accepting as essentially in this case, potentially it could, there's two different ways I read it. Um, one is that the loop requires him to be dead in order for the kind of regular timeline to, to resume and kind of continue. And the second interpretation is the kind of more sad one where he doesn't actually need to die. It just needs to return that jet engine. But yes. I think yeah. what happened, <laughs> what happens in the movie that there's a, this kind of controversy, there's this kind of like secret cover up where it's like, Oh yeah, like the government doesn't want us to talk about this or some, something about a burned off serial number. But essentially, I think yeah. what happens is that the FAA discovers like, oh, this is a jet. This is this engine belongs to a plane that didn't actually lose any engines. So there's like a duplicate engine, yeah. and that's kind of there's something, some kind of temporal paradox happened with that jet engine to cause this break off in this alternate reality. But that all Donnie had to do was essentially use his superpowers, which is tell it's implied that he uses telekinesis at the end to send the jet engine back through the time portal, back to the prime mm -hmm. universe or back to where we're supposed to be. The kind of sadder interpretation is that he doesn't have to sacrifice himself. He doesn't have to die. Yeah, he doesn't it's have that, to die. Yeah. Um, there was something earlier in the film that we, we touched on um, briefly um, talking about the mental illness aspect. There was one really poignant scene um, that stands out to me with Donnie Darko talking to his therapist and she asked him at one point, they're going back and forth. She asked him what Roberto Sparrow whispered in his ear this one time. Yeah. And, and he tells her what she said. He said, every living creature on earth dies alone. Mm -hmm. And so she delves into this and asked him, are you alone? And he goes into this whole back and forth. And she asked him like, so the search for God is absurd. And he says, it is if everyone dies alone. Um, yeah. and, and she asked him, are, are you scared? And his response is really telling. He says, I don't want to be alone. Right. Cause like her question's ambiguous, right? Are you scared of death? Mm -hmm. Are you scared of being alone? And for him being alone, being lonely is, is more scary for him. Being alone is scarier for Donnie than death. And that speaks to the kind of isolation that I think he feels because of um, his mental illness and potential paranoid schizophrenia um, that he's dealing with where he feels that that death is a release from that from that hopelessness and that loneliness he feels. So part of that tragedy caught up in that you know supernatural time loop could be that yeah. essentially he commits suicide 
maybe not directly, but kind of indirectly yeah. allows himself to be killed um, because he, those last couple days we, that he had with Gretchen, where he was really was really happy for a while, um, just yeah. before she got brutally uh, killed by uh, a yeah. pre by Frank the Bunny before he became Frank the Bunny. <laughs> I don't know yeah. how to put it. Um, but yeah, so like <laughs> essentially he's closing the time loop. So he's in an alternate dimension where he has these extra powers, obviously strength and I think telekinesis and power over water and, and fire and stuff and power maybe, I think they mentioned yeah, mind they control. Yeah, they mentioned that he could like conjure, yeah, mind control. They can conjure which, water, which kind of makes fire, sense because which... he seems to be able to have an influence over people in terms of speaking the truth and kind of getting away with yeah. it. But in my mind, it was like a quote unquote simple case of essentially like you look at back to the future where they create the alternate timeline. Um, except in this mm-hmm. case, it's kind of two timelines occurring simultaneously. And then, um, in order for one not to kind of destroy the other, he has to kind of merge them back into one, um, and, end that loop. Yeah. So for me, I don't know if it's been going on multiple times or just that, just that one time, that one period of 28 days that it's, it's not a crazy narrative interpretation. I think many, many people came to the same interpretation. I think it's pretty yeah. close to, um, Richard Kelly's own interpretation. I don't care about all the manipulated living and all the ma- manipulated dead and all that weird <laughs> stuff like that doesn't mean much to me. Um, but just that whole idea of um, that whole time loop and alternate reality. And essentially there are obviously at the end with that storm coming that, that the yeah. alternate reality that the two possibilities can't coexist, that they have to be all possibilities have to be collapsed down into one or else they're going to destroy each other cancel each other out almost like matter and antimatter yeah. right you have to have yeah yeah like it's like it's like almost like choosing a path in life right you can't you can't simultaneously decide to turn both left and right both things can't be true at the same time if everything's yeah. true then nothing's true right if all the universes exist and no universes exist so he has to collapse it down to the prime timeline so that's kind of my overall interpretation of narratively what's going on <laughs> how about you was it all a dream brian i don't even I don't even know where to start. I think for me, I like, you, you know, I, I take movies a little more literally, I think. And this one, I don't even want to venture into like an interpretation Ooh. at times. Like I've watched this in in previous years and I'm just like, I'm just happy to just accept uh, what happened up. here. <laughs> but no, no, I, I have a full okay. thing that I, I like to get into. And I think... I really love, like you, you say, you don't care for the manipulated living and the dead and all that stuff. I really like the sort of like the the supernatural cosmic element of this stuff. And so for me, it's like, oh, this is like, these are like Cthulhu level God, ancient gods, like fooling around with this timeline. Nice. And I think here it was just like, okay, we have... The plane engine is an artifact and like the, there's always an artifact from a tangent universe. So we have our two universes running side by side and the, the, the engine comes into our main universe and it's up to the, uh, what's Donnie again? The living, living receiver, the living receiver. So the living receiver has this responsibility to get the artifact back to the tangent universe before essentially a black hole is created and destroys both universes, like the tangent universe cannot exist for more than a few weeks. And that's why we have the 28 day countdown. Right. And I love that. It like ends on Halloween night. I just love that touch there. It's just thematically, it just works on every level for me. And so 
Frank, technically Halloween morning because the party is actually happening on the 30th. You know, I remember thinking about when I was watching this, I mean, because they don't give the, the countdown. And it was just like, oh, wait, this doesn't actually happen on Halloween. They're night having because, a Halloween themed party for to celebrate yeah. Elizabeth's acceptance into Harvard. But like, but, but exactly. the black hole does form on the morning of Halloween. So yeah, the, the, the yes. apocalypse does happen on Halloween. Just not a spooky nighttime. Yeah, it's not spooky nighttime. And it, Everyone at the party is dressed up in their Halloween costumes anyway, right? Um, and Frank is basically the manipulated dead because he dies by Donnie's hand being shot for running over Gretchen. And Gretchen is also a manipulated dead who are trying to get Donnie to like push him forward to returning that artifact, trying to push him into those, those events. And Frank takes a very literal approach. It's like he appears in front of him behind the water barrier, uh, which allows is like a, a carrier for time travel or something between these uh, the tangent universe and our main universe. Um, and so, yeah, basically the the events of the film just kind of play out where Donnie realizes everything that's going to happen, and he kind of knows he needs to do this. And for him, I think for all the reasons you pointed out before, like he wants to die, right? And so he goes back in time to that moment where he knows he's able to return that that uh, artifact. What I really don't understand is, one, like how he travels back in time is not really explained, or why the artifact, like why the jet engine still appears in the main timeline, and we're led to believe that him dying will end that tangent universe, right? Where it makes more sense to me that it would be a time loop where his death ends the time loop, but I'm not sure how things exactly play out. Like I, I'm not even going to try to think, well, but I don't think the film explicitly wants you to figure that part out. Yeah, so it sounds like both of our interpretations kind of borrow from Richard Kelly's own um, stated interpretations. I think we're taking, yeah. I think our, our, we're taking um, language. I think we're, we're kind of sort of aligning with Richard Kelly's interpretation, but slightly, yep. Like there's a Venn diagram, I think, where we're overlapping a little bit. But I think what you're pointing Definitely. out too is that, um, again, going back to the theme of of paradox, and this movie perfectly embodies this with how it portrays time travel, right? Where it's yeah. challenging, like the events, the series of events that are portrayed in the film and the order in which they're happening, it calls into question what seems to be uh, one of our kind of few settled kind of fundamental questions about our perception of reality. And that is yeah. like the sequential nature of like cause and effect and like cause always preceding effect. Whereas in this movie, you have a temporal paradox where sometimes effect seems to precede the cause. And so yeah. it's playing with those expectations. And so that's why one of those reasons why I think it's a little bit harder to wrap our heads around because traditionally of how we think of, you know, time as a line and, this cause has to happen before this effect, but we're seeing sometimes yeah. the effect happening before the cause, which I think it's a little bit crazy to think about. But I think if you're looking at in terms of you know temporal paradox, it makes a bit more sense, right? And so I think that Could, yeah. that makes things play out, or it kind of quote unquote explains what's going on. But one thing I didn't account for in my interpretation was Frank the Bunny, and here's my interpretation yes. now. So when Donny Darko. So in this alternate reality where I think Richard Kelly specifically said um, through the philosophy of time travel book that the that Donnie Darko, for whatever reason, he gets superpowers in in this alternate dimension. Um, but one of those superpowers is obviously being able to kind of look into the future a bit. And so for me, Frank the Bunny, 
to fit in my interpretation, Frank the Bunny has to be all in Donnie's head, where Donnie Darko is looking into the future, right? And subconsciously, maybe, where he's not even conscious of this, but it's like a, a future memory of like of Frank the Bunny, um, Frank, who ends, who is actually, I never put two and two together for, Frank is actually Elizabeth's boyfriend in the movie. Oh, really? Yes. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. You see his car driving away from the house. At yes. The very first, at the very beginning. Of yeah, the, yeah. So he's there from the very beginning. <laughs> but essentially, it's kind of this almost subconscious memory traveling backwards through time where Donnie has this foreknowledge that it's manifesting itself visually as this person who ends up killing his girlfriend, the one person who really loved, who was really that kind of bright spot in his kind of, in the darkness that he felt in his life. And it was this manifestation of essentially his subconscious guiding him along this path that he needed to follow in the form of this person who had this significant connection to him in the future. So it's dealing with like that kind of essentially precognition in a way, manifesting itself partially through the lens of his mental illness, right? So blending that Hmm. sci-fi elements into the kind of more grounded realistic elements. But I think, I don't think we're that, that far off in our interpretations. I think we're still dealing with time loops and time travel and alternate realities. Without a doubt. I had some thoughts when I was watching the movie last night that kind of disturbed me that I'm not sure I had considered before. Maybe I'm just ripping this off from somewhere. But I was kind of struggling with the idea that time travel, even in this world, could exist in the traditional like back to the future sense, right? And because to me, it's without a doubt, there's like a tangent universe running side by side. It made sense to me thinking that the tangent universe and the main universe are 28 days apart in how they're playing Um, out, right? 28 days, six hours. Yes. 42 minutes. 12 seconds. <laughs> and yeah, there's meaning in the number, like the number eight appears a, a bunch of the time, a bunch of times in the movie. And when you add that timeline up, the numbers you just said, it equals 88. And, you know, 88 on a side is kind of an infinity symbol. And what if the universe is composed of all of these multiple universes that are all, you know, I'm rounding down here to 28 days apart, right? So at the end of this movie, where Donnie goes back in time, he's literally just jumping to the next timeline that is 28 days behind his, right? And I think for me, it still plays out in a, in explaining that the tangent universe is messed up and the living receiver needs to correct that timeline or all the timelines could kind of break down because of that. But there is another timeline where they those events still play out and we're sort of going back in time 28 days and that becomes like the prime universe. And then there's another universe 28 days behind that one that is also kind of fine now because that other one in front of it played it safe. And when you start reading the philosophy of time travel, like on the website and you start looking at these things, there's other instances of these artifacts that go back in time. And it kind of plays into a really fascinating thing that I see online uh, every so often as we discover, you know, buried within rocks, these unexplained objects, right? That we just find in our world. And that plays into this movie uh, where those are tangent devices. Those are the artifacts <laughs> that appear from other universes and they shouldn't be there. Like this jet engine, 
will live on in the main universe as an unknown quantity because it still lines up with a jet engine that is on a plane right now or maybe even hasn't been made yet. Well, no, I think that's the right? whole thing. Like in that interpretation, um, originally there was a duplicate engine, right? But in this main timeline, it was take, it was taken from the main timeline and brought over to the other timeline. And that's what created the paradox is that there's this engine from a plane that still has its, all its engines. So that engine was put back into its original universe where uh, there was a yes. plane crash at some point. Yeah. There's still wishy-washy things going on for me, yeah. but I don't, I don't care enough about delving into that or trying to break the illusion. I want, I still like that there's mystery Well, at the end of the movie that I'm like, okay, I'm fine with something. I things. think this is the great <laughs> thing about Donnie Darko. And one of the things that keeps people coming back is that no matter how you put the pieces together, no matter how the puzzle pieces fit together for you individually, they're not going to fit together perfectly. There's going to be rough yeah. edges. Some of the pieces just are never going to fit. Um, I think it fits in with that um, theme of free will and, you know, versus predestination. And, you know, are we set along predetermined paths? Do we have free will to change? Uh, I think it's, you know, an ongoing tension that um, obviously philosophers have wrestled with, but I think that we all kind of wrestle yeah. with in some degree um, in our daily lives. And I think like all great questions in life, it's one of those tensions that can't be ever completely resolved that, it, it lives like that tension is an ongoing force and it's, it's an ongoing, yeah. it's an ongoing debate. And it's not about the destination because there is no definitive destination. It's about the journey. But I like how <laughs> even in the, in the movie, right? Like we're all beholden to a large degree to forces beyond our control. Um, yeah. you know, in, in the meta sense, in terms of the movie being directed by somebody and, and the story being written by somebody, but in the movie itself, it's talking about predestination and you see those, what Donnie describes as spears of lights. Essentially, everyone has a path they follow. Um, yeah. But at some point, like we're all traveling down a path, whether it's one that we've chosen or one that's been chosen for us, we, we're going to eventually get to a point in the road where like inevitably it's going to carry us to, yeah. it's, you know, that any path, whether it's chosen for us or chosen by us, there's going to be an inevitable conclusion to that path. So, whether that's defined, whether you would define that as predestination or fate or destiny. Um, for me, it's always been a combination of some, some combination um, of, you know, free will and, and, and destiny or fate together. I wouldn't call it fate per se. Um, I would refer it more to like the random, you know, chaos and random chance of the universe forces beyond our control. Um, as surely as, as gravity is beyond our control, um, all due respect to Interstellar and Christopher Nolan um, <laughs> and, the, and the gravity <laughs> drive there. But that's the great thing about Donnie Darko, too, is that you can never resolve. Even, even our interpretations aren't perfect. Yeah. All the puzzle pieces don't fit perfectly. And it's okay not to be perfect. It's okay not to conform completely. It's okay that there are rough edges or loose threads that yeah. don't always add up. That's what I love about the film is that there's a messiness to it. Like two plus two doesn't always equal four in the world of Donnie Darko. And that's yeah. great. And I love that. It represents all of cinema for me. I don't need all the explanations in the world. I don't need movies to tell me exactly what happened. I'm not losing sleep over not knowing how that jet engine was able to travel <laughs> through multiple universes, right? It's just like, it's it just, I'm there for the journey. And that's what makes Donnie Darko so good. I think the characters and the events that happen are just, 
the characters push it forward. It's story driven. It's character driven. There's so much talent. Well, in those actors, when you say that with Donnie Darko, you don't need anything else. I mean, really, this is a film that's it works on so many levels and it's got something for everybody, right? It's a sci-fi movie. It's a family drama. It's a horror story. It's a it's romance. A, film. It's a romance or love story. It's a coming of age story. It's you know like looking at the high school yeah. life. It's um. Is it a horror movie? Like, were you scared by this? Because Fat Frank, the bunny, yes. is terrifying to look at. hundred and he's creepy. Hundred percent. There were still scenes where like I got jump scares from Frank the bunny. Yeah. But it's also it's a poignant examination of the toll mental illness takes on individuals and their families. It could be read as a paranormal slash ghost story. It's a yep. philosophical meditation on some of life's biggest questions. Um, it's this great um, character-driven story, but it's essentially, it's got something for everybody. It's, it's yeah, amazing. Yeah. To say nothing of, we've been talking about theme and narrative and character this whole time and interpretations of the meaning of the film. But I mean, if you look at just how the film was shot, I mean, I was looking at, it always struck me how, like the, how wide the shots were, but they go into great depth about how like they actually fought to shoot this film in in uh, anamorphic widescreen, and you, and you really mm. get a sense of how like when you look at those pa- those uh, panoramas of the landscapes, or when you look at the um, the classroom and you see the wide shots of all the people, or the gymnasium, or or even the sh- shots of characters standing together, and you get so much. It's such a wide shot, and, and everything's together. Like there's that one montage at the beginning when they introduce Donnie Darko at the school with all the other characters where it's just like just set to music and it's the, the camera's going through the school and you get introduced to all these characters pretty much the, almost the entire main cast outside of Donnie Darko's family no dialogue at all but you get a sense of each of these characters and, and their relationship yeah, you get to each insight other. into them yeah perfect perfect use of um the visual storytelling power of cinema um there's so many great shots throughout this uh this movie every time i watch it and i haven't watched in a couple years and you know i i actually i that's one of my regrets i have um in in terms of my watching habits that some of these movies like donnie darko have kind of fallen out of regular rotation just as there's so many movies to watch out there but donnie darko really for me it, it does have it all and it's it is one of my favorite movies of all time hands down do you have anything else to add, uh, Brian? Any more insightful insights? No, not really. Can I end off by reading in the movie itself, um, Roberta Sparrow, um, she's, she's this old woman. Turns out she used to be a nun, ended up at one point leaving the church, becoming a teacher, teaching science. Now she's an eccentric old lady. She spends most of her day walking back and forth to her mailbox to check for, for mail. It's kind of this, you know, very kind of sympathetic um, figure. And at one point, um, Donnie Darko actually writes her a letter and leaves it in the mailbox. And I just wanted to read the contents of that letter um, because I think it is pretty poignant and kind of sums up the themes of the movie and different interpretations. For me, this, this really, really hit home. It was just really beautifully written. And he says, Dear Roberta Sparrow, I have reached the end of your book. And there are so many things that I need to ask you. Sometimes I'm afraid of what you might tell me. Sometimes I'm afraid that you'll tell me that this is not a work of fiction. I can only hope that the answers will come to me in my sleep. I hope that when the world comes to an end, I can breathe a sigh of relief because there will be so much to look forward to. 
That's a wrap on another episode of the Real Film Chronicles podcast. Thank you for listening and hanging out with us today. We really appreciate your support and look forward to you joining us for the next episode. We can be found around the internet and social media, with our home base being realfilmchronicles.com, which will have all the links you need to follow and keep in touch with us. Until next time, take care of yourself and others, and keep your film journey going.